0: Hi, I'm Meg Wallitzer, Selected Shorts' regular host. But in the before Meg era, we had a wonderful series of guest hosts. One was the amazing actor Hope Davis, and this week we're repeating a show she presented a couple of years ago. I'll be back next week, if you still want me. Mom and dad saved the world, and Dave Eggers tells you all about it, this week on Selected Shorts. On this episode of Selected Shorts, stories about making peace with your brother, with your children, and with yourself. Stay with us. I'm Hope Davis, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. I've been a Selected Shorts reader for quite a while now. For me, reading comes naturally. I am the daughter of a librarian. And it provides a nice counterpoint to my television and film work in movies like American Splendor and Greenland, and television projects including In Treatment, Your Honor, and Succession. On this program, our three stories look at challenging family relationships and how, in each, some kind of resolution is reached. In one, the narrator reconnects with her estranged brother. In the second, social activism and parenting are intertwined. And in the third, a listener favorite, an extraordinary bond between sisters, is tested. Our first work, Break, is by Lebanese-American novelist Rabi Alameddine. First published in The New Yorker, the story later became part of his new novel, The Wrong End of the Telescope, which follows an Arab-American transgender woman's journey among Syrian refugees on Lesbos Island. She recounts her rift with her family and her reconciliation with her brother. Break is performed by Puya Moseni, whose credits include Law & Order SVU, Madam Secretary and the film See You Then. On her website, she says she loves stories that speak to me with rich, three dimensional characters, good and bad, who explore their humanity and fragility. We were happy to oblige. Here's Puya Moseni reading Break.
1: A few years after the break, I received an envelope from Beirut from my brother, Mazen, containing nothing but a black and white photograph. Standing before the cadre of mailboxes in the dark lobby of my building, I tore open the envelope and tried to figure out why Mazen would send me a picture of himself and his bride. No note. Not one word. Just a cliché of a wedding portrait. The couple coming out of the church, a young mazen, plump and fleshy, beginning to follow in his father's footsteps, dark suit and tie, a beaming smile on his face, grains of rice stuck to his meticulously gelled hair. Clearly besotted, he was gazing at his bride while she, coiffed hair streaked with highlights and gardenias, looked seductively at the camera, her leer proclaiming, I'll give him the wedding night and then all bets are off. Hmm. Had we been speaking, I would have warned poor Mazen, they divorced after ten hellish years. At the time, I didn't understand what he was trying to do. If he wanted to make contact, why send me a picture? Why not a letter, a phone call? Did he think this inanity would make me forgive him his duplicity? He was my closest friend always, my only friend. Co-signers of a covenant. We shared a bed till he was ten, pressed together against the same sheets of cotton, and he abandoned me. I sent my reply, a photograph of my girlfriend and me. She and I were young and in lesbian love, and the picture reflected it. We were atop each other in Central Park, haloed by glorious sunlight and a furious cloud of gnats. I sported big hair and layers of early Madonna tops over my budding breasts. Ten years earlier, I had won a scholarship to Yale. A full eating, drinking, sleeping, studying scholarship, the prestige of which had earned me my family's blessing— "'Leave, leave, young man. God be with you. "'Leave and return to us with untold riches "'and a smidgen of culture to edify.' "'I left Lebanon, and I transitioned in college, "'changing from a depressed young man to an angry one. "'The humiliations of my childhood, "'the don't do this, the boys don't do that, "'the you must try to be normal, "'all those sticks and twigs dry kindling "'burst into a furious bonfire.' Everything was my family's fault. Of course it was. My cracked cup runnest over with molten rage that no saucer could contain. My calls home became more obstreperous and less frequent. My side of the conversations consisted of various permutations of, I hate you, I loathe you, you never respected me, you never understood me, I'm unhappy and you made me so, I demand justice, I despise you. Anger was the shape of my breath, outrage the sound of my voice. I cultivated indignation like a hothouse flower. My mother made sure to explain that I was giving the whole family a bad name, that they would be mocked and ridiculed because of me and the way I was choosing to live my life. I don't know which was the final straw, changing my major or changing my sex. I switched from pre-med to English at the beginning of my second year. I went out in public with coal on my eyes and ruby red lipstick in the middle of my third My mother decided that I was dead. No one was to talk to or of me. Not my father, not my siblings. She killed me. Nothing hurt as much as being cut off from Mazen. When, as a child, I used to wake up terrified in the dark, so scared that I would sidle closer to him in our small bed and hug him fiercely, he poured comfort into my ears. The nightmare was not real, he would tell me. It couldn't hurt me. I was certain that I'd never forgive his betrayal. But he sneaked back into my life, slipped into the water with a silent paddle. We sent photographs back and forth for seven years, but no words were exchanged. Our relationship was reduced to a visual correspondence. It was only later when he came to visit for the first time that I learned that he'd sworn to the homunculus that was his mother that he would chop off his tongue if he uttered a word to me, that he'd saw off a finger if he wrote a single letter to the family freak. Instead, he'd send me a picture of himself on a Beirut beach, and I'd return one of my wife and me matching skirts. I received a snapshot of his son and returned one of my cats. I refused to break." I immured my heart in iron. I was the strong one. When I published my first book, I didn't think anyone back in my cursed home country would even notice. Small press, different name, poetry. How Mazen found it, I do not know. I received a picture of him with his second baby boy cradled in his right arm and his left hand holding epistles. My pride in paperback. The title stationed right where his heart was supposed to be. He broke first. I received a four-by-six portrait of his son with a slightly bleeding nose, taken hastily, badly lit, likely by a bathroom bulb. On the ten-year-old face, a thread of blood trickled from nose to upper lip, curving an OG around the corner of the mouth and down the chin. The boy was in no pain. He looked inquisitively at the camera probably wondering why his father had had the urge to bring it out i held my breath for a beat or two or three when i saw the image on the back of the photograph mazin had written i keep seeing you iron is iron until it is rust (laughs) when i was ten a bully at school pushed me into a wall my nose bled Mazen, eleven at the time, took me to the lavatory and helped me clean my face. We missed two classes, hiding and holding each other in the bathroom. The boy's face in the photograph is an almost exact replica of the one I saw in the mirror that day. Mazen's son looks more like me than like his father. My response didn't include a picture. Like him, I began with only one sentence. The insipid of all further conversation. In the middle of a white sheet, I wrote, I have never stopped missing you.
0: Puya Moseni performed Break by Rabi Alamadine. I'm Hope Davis. Though the story doesn't offer the happiest ending, and we don't know the fate of these siblings, Alamedine provides a real hope for their shared future. For our second story, we turn to something a little lighter, Your Mother and I, by the quirky humorist and activist Dave Eggers. Eggers is the founder of the independent publishing company McSweeney's. Its quarterly journal is one of the places Shorts visits often to find new voices. Eggers' many books include the Circle, The Monk of Mocha, and What is the What? Activism plays a part in the playful story we're about to hear. Imagine that your parents were amped up hippies who didn't just want to change the world, they changed it. Peace and love? Absolutely. But their agenda was much bigger. But really, this is a piece about how a family connects through story and whatever they are making in the kitchen we can imagine the listener as a restless tween who doesn't quite get mom and dad. Your Mother and I is read by the late, incomparable essayist and performer, David
2: Rakoff. I told you about that, didn't I? About when your mother and I moved the world to solar energy and wind power to hydro, all that? I never told you that? Can you hand me that cheese? No. No. The other cheese, the cheddar, right? I really thought I told you about that. What is happening to my head? Well, we have to take the credit, your mother and I, for reducing our dependence on oil and for beginning the Age of Wind and Sun. That was pretty awesome. The name wasn't ours though, your Uncle Frank came up with that. He always wanted to be in a band and call it that, the Age of Wind and Sun, but he never learned guitar and couldn't sing. When he sang, He enunciated too much, you know? He sang like he was trying to teach English to Turkish children. (laughs) Turkish children with learning disabilities. (laughs) It was really odd. He's singing, You already done? Okay, here's the Monterey Jack. Just dump it in the bowl. All of it, right. It was all pretty simple, converting most of the nation's electricity. At a certain point, everyone knew that we just had to suck it up and pay the money because, holy crap, it was really expensive at first to set up the cities to make their own power. All those solar panels and windmills on the city buildings, they weren't always there, you know. No, they weren't. Look at some pictures, honey. They just weren't. The roofs of these millions of buildings weren't being used in any real way. So I said, hey, let's have the buildings themselves generate some or all of the power they use. And it might look really pretty good to boot. Everyone loves windmills, right? Windmills are awesome. So we started in Salt Lake City and went from there. Oh, hey, can you, can you grate that one? Just take half of that block of Munster. Here's a bowl, thanks. Then we do the cheddar. Cheddar has to be next. After the cheddar pecorino, never the other way around. Say it with me, hun. Jack Munster cheddar pecorino. It is the only way. Right after that was a period of much activity. Your mother and I tended to do a big project like the power conversion, then follow it with a bunch of smaller, quicker things. So we made all the roads red. You wouldn't remember this, you weren't even born. We were all into the roads then, so we had most of them painted red most of them, especially the highways, a leathery red that looked good with just about everything, with green things and blue skies and woods of cedar and golden swamps and sugar-colored beaches. I think we were right. You like them, right? They used to be gray, the roads. Insane, right? Your mom thinks yellow would have been good too, an ochre but sweeter. Anyway, in the same week, we got rid of school funding tied to local property taxes. Can you believe they used to still pull that crap? Banned bicycle shorts for everyone but professionals and made everyone's hair shinier. That was us, your mother and I. That was right after our work with the lobbyists. I never told you that either. I must be losing my mind. I never mentioned the lobbyists about when we had them all deported. (laughs) That part of it, the deportation was your mother's idea. All I'd said was, hey, why not ban old lobbying? or at least ban all donations from lobbyists and make them wear cowbells so everyone would know they were coming. (laughs) And then your dear mom, who was, I think, a little tipsy at the time, we were at a bar where they had a Zima special, and you know how your mom loves her Zima. She said, how about to make sure those bastards don't come back to Washington, have them all sent to Greenland. And wow, the idea just took off. People loved it, and Greenland welcomed them warmly. They'd apparently been looking for ways to boost their tourism. (laughs) They set up some cages and a viewing area, and it was a a big hit. So then we were all pumped up, to be honest. Wow, this kind of thing, the lobbyist thing especially, boy, it really made your mother horny. Matter of fact, I think you were conceived around that time, she was like some kind of tsunami. Oh, don't give me that face. What? Did I cross some line? Don't you want to know when your seed was planted? I would think you'd want to know that kind of thing. Well, then I stand corrected. (laughs) Anyway, we were on a roll, so we got rid of genocide. (laughs) The main idea was to create and maintain a military force of about 20,000 troops, under the auspices of the UN, which could be deployed quickly to any part of the world within about 36 hours. This wouldn't be the usual blue helmets watching the slaughter. These guys would be badass. We were sick of the civilized world sort of twiddling their thumbs while hundreds of thousands of people killed each other in Rwanda, Bosnia, way back in Armenia, on and on. And then the UN would send 12 Belgian soldiers. Nice guys, but really, you have a genocide raging in Rwanda, 800,000 dead in a month, and you send 12 Belgians? So we made this proposal, the UN went for it, and within a year the force was up and running. And man, oh man, your mother was randy again. That's, that's when your fecundation happened, and why we called you Jana. I remember it now, I was wrong before. Your mother and I were actually caught in the UN bathroom after the vote went our way. The place, all marble and brass was full of people, and at the worst possible moment, Kofi himself walked in. (laughs) He sure was surprised to see us there on the sink, but I have to say, he was pretty cool about it. He actually seemed to enjoy it, even watched for a minute, because there was no way we were going to stop in the middle of... Fine. (laughs) I won't do that again. It's just that it's part of the story, honey. Everything we did started with love and ended with lust, but... You're right, that was inappropriate. We went on tear right after genocide, very busy. I attribute it partly to the vitamins we were on, very intense program of herbs and vitamins and protein shakes. We'd shoot out of bed and bounce around like bunnies, so that's when we covered Cleveland in ivy. (laughs) You've seen pictures, we did that. Just said, hey, Cleveland, What if you were covered in ivy, all the buildings? Wouldn't that look cool, be a big tourist attraction? And they said, sure. Not right away, though. You know who helped us with that? Dennis Kucinich. (laughs) I used to call him Sparky because he was such a feisty fella. Your mom, she called him the cooch. (laughs) We're gonna need all three kinds of salsa, hon. Yeah, use the small bowls, just pour it right up to the edge, right. Your brother likes to mix it up, me? I'm a fan of the mild. Right after Cleveland and the Ivy, we made all the kids memorize poetry again. We hadn't memorized any growing up. This was the 70s and 80s, and people hadn't taught that for years. And we really found we missed it. The girls were fine with the idea, and the boys caught on when they realized it would help them get older women into bed. (laughs) Around that time, we banned wearing fur outside of Arctic regions. Flooded the market with diamonds and golds and silver to the point where none had any value, fixed the ozone hole. I could show you that, we've got it on video. (laughs) And then we did the thing with the llamas. What are you doing? Sour cream in the salsa? No, no, that's just wrong, sweetie, my God. So yeah, oh yeah, we put llamas everywhere, that was us. We just like looking at them, so we bred six million and spread them around. They weren't there before. No, honey, they weren't. Oh man, there's one now. In the backyard, isn't it a handsome thing? Now they're as common as squirrels or deer, and you have your mom and pop to thank for that. It's jalapeno time. Use the smaller knife, you're gonna cut the crap out of your hand. You don't want one of those. You see this scar on my thumb? Looks like a scythe, right? I got that when we were negotiating the removal of the nation's billboards. I was climbing one of them in Kentucky, actually, to start a hunger strike kind of thing, sort of silly, I guess, and cut the ship doodle out of that left thumb. (laughs) Why the billboards? Haven't you seen one? In books? Well, I guess I just never really liked the look of them. They just seemed so ugly and such an intrusion on the collective involuntary consciousness, a blight on the land. Vermont had outlawed them, and boy, what a difference that made. So your mother and I revived Lady Bird Johnson's campaign against him. And of course, 98% of the public was with us. So the whole thing happened pretty quickly. We had most of the billboards down within a year. Right after that, your brother Sid was conceived. And it was about that time that I had my tubes tied. Give me some of that cobbler, hun. we We're going to have the peach cobbler after the main event. I just want to get the cool whip on it, then stick it in the freezer for a minute. That's Frank's trick. Frank's come up with a lot of good ideas for improving frozen and refrigerated desserts. No, that's not his job, honey. Frank doesn't have a job, per se. I guess a lot of what we did, what made so much of this possible, was eliminate the bipolar nature of so much of what passed for debate in those days. So often the media would take even the most logical idea like private funding for all sports stadiums, or having all colleges require 40 hours of community service to graduate, and make it seem like there were two equally powerful sides to the argument, which was so rarely the case. A logical fallacy is what that was. So we just got them to keep things in perspective a bit, not make everyone so crazy polarizing every last debate. I mean, there was a time when you couldn't get a light bulb replaced because the press would find a way to, quote, the sole lunatic in the world who didn't want that light bulb replaced. (laughs) So we sat them all down, all the members of the media, and we said, listen, we all want to have progress. We all want a world for the grandkids and all. We know we're going to need better gas mileage on the cars and that all the toddlers are going to need head start. We're going to need weekly parades through every town and city to keep morale up. We're going to get rid of three strikes and mandatory minimums in the execution of the prisoners. And it all has to happen sooner or later. So don't go blowing any opposition to any of it out of proportion. Don't go getting everyone inflamed. Honestly, when lynchings were originally outlawed, you can bet the newspapers made it seem like there was some real validity to the pro-lynching side of things. You can be sure that the third paragraph of any article would have said, Not everyone is happy about the anti-lynching legislation. We talked to a local resident who is not at all happy about it. Anyway, we sat everyone down, served some carrots and onion dip, and in a couple of hours, your mother and I had straightened all that out. About then, we had a real productive period. In about six months, we established a global minimum wage. We made it so smoke detectors could be turned off without having to rip them out from the ceiling. And we got Soros to buy the Amazon, to preserve it. That was fun. He took us on his jet. Beautiful thing. Appointed in the smoothest cherry antique. And they had the soda where you add the colored syrup yourself. You ever have that kind? So good. But you can't overdo it. Too much syrup, you feel bloated for a week. Well, then we came home, rested up for a few days, and then we found a cure for Parkinson's. (laughs) We did so, honey. Yeah, that was us. Don't you ever look through that nice scrapbook we made? You should, it's in the garage with your Uncle Frank. Are you sure he's asleep? No, don't wake him up. Hell, I guess you have to wake him up anyway because he won't want to miss the Comida grande. After Parkinson's, we fixed AIDS pretty well. We didn't cure it, but we made the inhibiting drugs available worldwide for free as a condition of the drug companies being allowed to operate in the United States. Their profit margins were insane at the time, so they relented, made amends, and it worked out fine. That was about when we made all buildings curvier and all cars boxier. (laughs) After AIDS and the curves, we did some work on elections. First, we made them no more than two months long, publicly funded, and forced the networks to give two hours a night to the campaigns. Around when you were born, the candidates were spending about $200 million each on TV ads because the news wasn't covering the elections for more than 90 seconds a night. It was nuts. So we fixed that and then we perfected online and phone voting. Man, participation went through the roof. Everyone thought there was just all this apathy when the main problem was finding your damn polling place. And all the red tape, register now, vote then, come to this elementary school, but skip work to do it and on and on, voting on a Tuesday? Good Lord. But the online voting, the voting over the phone, man, that was great. Suddenly, participation exploded from what? About 40% to 88 We did that over Columbus Day weekend, I think. I remember I'd just had my hair cut, very short. Yeah, like in the picture in the hallway. We called that style the Timberlake. And that's about when your mom got all kinky again. She went out, bought this... For this one device, it was kind of like a swing where there was this harness and uh, fine. (laughs) You don't need to know about that. But the harness figures in because that's when your mother had the idea, some of her best ideas happened when she was lying down, to make it illegal to have more than one president from the same immediate family. (laughs) That was just a personal gripe she had. We'd had the Adamses and the Bushes and we were about to have the Clintons and your mother just got pissed. What the fuck, she said. Are we gonna have a monarchy here or what? Are we that stupid? Do we have to go to the same well every time? This isn't an Aaron spelling casting call. This is the damn presidency. I said, what about the Kennedys? And she said, screw them. Or maybe she didn't say that, but that was the spirit of it. She's a fiery one, your mom. A fiery furnace of So, yeah, she pushed that through, a constitutional amendment. That led to another busy period. One week, we made all the cars electric, put water slides in every elementary school. We increased average life expectancy to 164, made it illegal to manufacture or wear Cosby sweaters, and made penises better looking, more streamlined, better coloring, less hair. People, you know, We're real appreciative about that. (laughs) And the last thing we did, which I know I've told you about, was the program where everyone can redo one year of their childhood. For $580, you can go back to the year of your choice and do that one again. You're not allowed to change anything, do anything differently, but you get to be there again. Live the whole year with what you know now. Oh man, that was a good idea. Everyone loved it, and it, Made up for all the people who were pissed when we painted Kansas purple. <laughs> Every last inch of it. I did the period between ten and a half and, 11 and a half. Fifth grade. Wow, that was sweet. Speaking of ten-year-olds, here comes your brother and Uncle Frank. We didn't have to wake you up. Hola, hermano, tios. Esta la noche de los nachos. Si, si. <laughs> And here's your mother, descending the stairs with her hair up. This I was particularly proud of when I convinced your mother to wear her hair up more often. When she first did it a week before our wedding, I was breathless. I was lifted. I felt as if I'd met her twin, and oh, how I was confused. Was I cheating on my beloved with this version of her, with that long neck exposed, the hair falling in helixes, kissing her clavicles. She assured me that I was not, and that's how we got married, with her hair up. That's how we did the walk with the music and the fanfare, everything yellow and white, side by side, long even strides, she and me, your mother and I. David Rakoff
0: performed Your Mother and I by Dave Eggers. I'm Hope Davis. I think we'd all be more likely to forgive annoying parental tics if they accomplished a fraction of what the parents did in that story, the water slides and billboards alone. Let's see, if I had the power to fix one thing... Hmm, How about putting an end to gerrymandering? That's actually doable, don't you think? When we return, sustaining love and peace at a price. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. Each week, our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Hope Davis. If you missed one of the stories performed earlier in this show, you're in luck. We have a podcast. Well, of course we do. The easiest way to find it is on our website, SelectedShorts.org. While there, just look for Subscribe to Podcast, and you'll find links to your favorite provider, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or others. And please spread the joy of these fabulous stories by sharing with your friends or family. On this show, we're looking at families and ways in which they find affirmation or peace. Our final story, a favorite from our archives, is Amy Bloom's heartbreaking but transcendent Silver Water. Bloom is the author of short story collections including A Blind Man Can See How Much I Love You and Where the God of Love Hangs Out, and the novels Lucky Us and White Houses. She's been a nominee for both the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Silverwater chronicles the mental disintegration of a beautiful and talented young woman as witnessed by her sister. The story was published in 1993, and some of the language around the issue of mental illness is dated. But the power of this work comes from the way this family never falters in their love and the way in which the central character is allowed to live life on her own terms. Our reader is the engaging actor Linda Lavin. Lavin is well known for her television work on series such as Barney Miller and Alice, and for a long career on and off Broadway, shows including Gypsy, The Sister's Rosenzweig, and Death Defying Axe. She is equally at home in this beautiful and wrenching story. Here she is with Amy Bloom's Silver Water.
3: My sister's voice was like Mountain water in a silver pitcher, the clear blue beauty of it cools you, lifts you up beyond your heat, beyond your body. After we went to see La Traviata when she was 14 and I was 12, she elbowed me in the parking lot and said, check this out. And she opened her mouth unnaturally wide and her voice came out so crystalline and bright that all the departing opera goers stood frozen by their cars, unable to take out their keys or open their doors until she had finished and then they cheered like hell. (laughs) That's what I like to remember and that's the story I told to all of her therapists. (laughs) I wanted them to know her, to know that who they saw was not all there was to see. That before the constant tinkling of commercials and fast-food jingles, there had been Puccini and Mozart and hymns so sweet and mighty you expected Jesus to come down off his cross and clap. <laughs> that before there was a mountain of Thorazine fat swaying down the halls in nylon maternity tops and sweatpants, there had been the prettiest girl in Arundale Elementary School, the belle of landmark junior high. Maybe there were other pretty girls, but I didn't see them. To me, Rose, my beautiful blonde defender, my guide to Tampax, and my mother's moods was perfect. (laughs) She had her first psychotic break when she was 15. She had been coming home moody and tearful, then quietly beaming. Then she stopped coming home. She would go out into the woods behind our house and not come in until my mother would go out at dusk and gently step into the briars and saplings and pull her out, blank-faced, her pale blue pullover covered with crumbly leaves her white jeans smeared with dirt. After three weeks of this, my mother, who is a musician and widely regarded as eccentric, said to my father, who is a psychiatrist and a kind, sad man, she's going off. (laughs) What is that, your professional opinion? He picked up the newspaper and put it down again, sighing, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to snap at you. I know something's bothering her. Have you talked to her? What's there to say? David, she's going crazy. She doesn't need a heart-to-heart talk with mom. She needs a hospital. They went back and forth, and my father sat down with Rose for a few hours, and she sat there licking the hairs on her forearm, first one way, then the other. My mother stood in the hallway, dry-eyed and pale, watching the two of them. She had already packed Rose's bag, and when three of my father's friends dropped by to offer free consultations and recommendations, my mother and Rose's suitcase were already in the car. My mother hugged me and told me that they would be back that night, but not with Rose. She also said, divining my worst fear, it won't happen to you, honey. Some people go crazy and some people never do. You never will. She smiled and stroked my hair, not even when you want to. (laughs) Rose was in hospitals, great and small, for the next 10 years. She had lots of terrible therapists and a few good ones. One place had no pictures on the walls, no windows, and the patients all wore slippers with the hospital crest on them. My mother didn't even bother to go to admissions. She turned Rose around and two of them marched out, my father trailing behind them, apologizing to his colleagues. My mother ignored the psychiatrists, the social workers, and the nurses, and she played Handel and Bessie Smith for the patients on whatever piano was available. At some places, she had a Steinway donated by a grateful or optimistic family. At others, she banged out, give me a pig foot on an old scarred box that hadn't been tuned since there had been English-speaking physicians on the grounds. My father talked in serious appreciative voices to the administrators and unit chiefs and tried to be friendly with whoever was managing Rose's case. We all hated family therapists. (laughs) The worst family therapist we ever had sat in a pale green room with us visibly taking stock of my mother's ethereal beauty and her faded blue T-shirt and girl-sized jeans, my father's rumpled suit and stained tie, and my own unreadable 16-year-old fashion statement. Rose was beyond fashion that year in one of her dancing teddy bear smocks and extra-large Celtic sweatpants. Mr. Walker read Rose's file in front of us and then watched in alarm as Rose began crooning beautifully and slowly massaging her breasts. My mother and I started to laugh and even my father started to smile. This was Rose's usual opening salvo for new therapists. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Walker said, I wonder why it is that everyone is so entertained by Rose behaving inappropriately. (laughs) Rose burped, and uh, then we all really laughed. (laughs) This was the seventh family therapist we had seen, and none of them had lasted very long. Mr. Walker, unfortunately, was determined to do right by us. What do you think of Rose's behavior, Violet? They did this sometimes. In their manual, it must say, if you think the parents are too weird, try talking to the sister. (laughs) I don't know, maybe she's trying to get you to stop talking about her in the third person. Nicely put, my father said. Indeed, my mother said. Fucking A, Rose said. (laughs) Well, this is something that the whole family agrees upon, Mr. Walker said. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to act as if he understood or even liked us. (laughs) That was not a successful intervention, ferret face rose tended to function better when she was angry he did look like a blonde ferret and we all laughed again even my father who tried to give these people a chance out of some sense of collegiality had given it up mr walker decided after 14 minutes that our time was up and walked out leaving us grinning at each other rose was still nuts but at least we'd all had a little fun our best family therapist started out almost as badly. We scared off a resident and then scared off her supervisor who sent us Dr. Thorne. 300 pounds of Texas chili, cornbread, and Lone Star beer finished off with big black cowboy boots and a little string tie around the area of his neck. Oh, just day, it's big nut. Rose was in heaven and stopped massaging her breasts immediately. Hey, little nut. You have to understand how big a man would have to be to call my sister Little Nut. He christened us all right away, and it's the good Dr. Nut and Madam Hickory Nut, because they are all the hardest damn nuts to crack, and over here in the overalls, and not much else is no one's nut, (laughs) a name which summed up both my sanity and my loneliness. We all relaxed. Dr. Thorne was good for us. Rose moved into a halfway house whose director loved Big Nut so much she kept Rose even when Rose went through a period of having sex with everyone who passed her door. She was in a fever for a while, trying to still the voices by fucking her brains out. <laughs> Big Nut said, "Darlin', I can't. I cannot make love to every beautiful woman I meet. And furthermore, I can't do that and be your therapist, too. It's a great shame, but I think you might be able to find a really nice guy, someone who treats you just as sweet and kind as I would if I were lucky enough to be your beau. I don't want you to settle for less. And she stopped propositioning the crack addicts and the alcoholics and the guys at the shelter. We love Dr. Thorne. My father cut back on seeing rich neurotics and helped out one day a week at Dr. Thorne's walk-in clinic. My mother finished a record of Mozart concerti and played at fundraisers for Rose's halfway house. I went back to college and found a wonderful linebacker from Texas to sleep with. In the dark, I would make him call me darling. Rose took her meds, lost about 50 pounds, and began singing at the AME Zion Church down the street from the halfway house. At first, they didn't know what to do with this big blonde lady dressed funny and hovering wistfully in the doorway during their rehearsals. But she gave them a few bars of Precious Lord, and the choir director felt God's hand and saw that with the help of his sweet child Rose, the Prospect Street Choir was going all the way to the Gospel Olympics. Amidst a sea of beige, umber, cinnamon, and espresso faces, there was Rose, bigger and blonder and pinker than any two white women could be. (laughs) (laughs) And Rose and the choir's contralto, Addie Robichaux, laid out their gold and silver voices and wove them together in strands as fine as silk, as strong as steel. And we wept as Rose and Addie in their billowing garnet robes swayed together, clasping hands until the last perfect note floated up to God. And then they smiled down on us. Rose would still go off from time to time, and the voices would tell her to do bad things. But Dr. Thorne or Addie or my mother could usually bring her back after five good years. Dr. Thorne nut died, stuffing his face with a chili dog, sitting in his unair-conditioned office in the middle of July. He had one big Texas-sized aneurysm and died. Rose held on tight for several days. She took her meds, went to quiet practice, and rearranged her room about a hundred times. His funeral was a lord's for the mentally ill. If you were psychotic, borderline, bad off neurotic, or just very hard to get along with, you were there. <laughs> People shaking so bad from years of heavy meds that they fell out of their pews. <laughs> People holding hands, crying, moaning, talking to themselves, the crazy and the not so crazy were all huddled together like puppies at the pound. Rose stopped taking her meds and the halfway house wouldn't keep her after she pitched another patient down the stairs. My father called the insurance company and found out that Rose's new improved psychiatric coverage wouldn't begin for 45 days. I put all of her stuff in a garbage bag and we walked out of the halfway house, Rose winking at the poor drooling boy on the couch. This is going to be difficult. Not all bad, but difficult for the whole family, and I thought we should discuss everybody's expectations. I know I have some concerns. My father had convened a family meeting as soon as Rose had finished putting each one of her 30 stuffed bears in its own special place. No meds, Rose said. Her eyes lowered, her stubby fingers, those fingers that had braided my hair and painted tulips on my cheeks pulling hard on the hem of her dirty smock. My father looked in despair at my mother. Rosie, do you want to drive the car, my mother said. Rosie's face lit up. I'd love to drive that car. I'll drive to California. I'd I'd go see the bears at the San Diego Zoo. I would take you, Violet, but you always hated the zoo. Remember how you cried at the Bronx Zoo when she found out that the animals didn't get to go home at closing? Rose put her damp hand on mine and squeezed it sympathetically. Poor Vi. If you take your medication, after a while you'll be able to drive the car. That's the deal. Meds, car. My mother sounded accommodating but unenthusiastic, careful not to heat up Rose's paranoia. You got yourself a deal, darling. I was living about an hour away then, teaching English during the day, writing poetry at night, and I went home every few days for dinner. I called every night. My father said quietly, it's very hard, we're doing all right, I think. Rose has been walking in the mornings with your mother and she watches a lot of TV. She won't go to the day hospital and she won't go back to the choir. Her friend Mrs. Robichaux came by a couple of times, what a sweet woman. Rose wouldn't even talk to her. She just sat there staring at the wall and humming. We're not doing all that well, actually, but I guess we're getting by. I'm sorry, sweetheart. I don't mean to depress you. My mother said emphatically, we're doing fine. We've got our routine and we stick to it and we're fine. You don't need to come home so often, you know. Wait till Sunday. Just come for the day. Lead your life by she's leading hers. I stayed away till Sunday, afraid to pick up my phone, grateful to my mother for the harsh calm and her reticence, the qualities that had enraged me throughout my childhood. I came on a Sunday in the early afternoon to help my father garden, something we'd always enjoyed together. We weeded and staked tomatoes and killed aphids while my mother and Rose went down to the lake. I didn't even get into the house until four when I needed a glass of water. Someone had broken the piano bench into five neatly stacked pieces and placed them where the piano bench usually was. We were having such a nice time, I couldn't bear to bring it up, my father said, standing in the doorway, carefully keeping his gardening boots out of the kitchen. What did Mommy say? She said, better the bench than the piano. And your sister lay down on the floor and just wept, Then your mother took her down to the lake. This can't go on. Vi, we have 27 days left. Your mother gets no sleep because Rose doesn't sleep, and if I could just pay $27,000 to keep her in the hospital until the insurance takes over, I'd do it. All right, do it. Pay the money and take her back to Hartley Reese. It was the prettiest place, and she liked the art therapy there. I would if I could. The policy states that she must be symptom-free for at least 45 days before her coverage begins. Symptom-free means no hospitalization. Jesus, Daddy, how could you get that kind of policy? She hasn't been symptom-free for 45 minutes. It's the only one I could get for long-term psychiatric. He put his hand over his mouth to block whatever he was about to say and went back out to the garden. I couldn't see if he was crying. He stayed outside and I stayed inside until Rose and my mother came home from the lake. Rose's soggy sweatpants were rolled up to her knees and she had a bucket full of shells and gray stones, which my mother persuaded her to leave on the back porch. My mother kissed me lightly and told Rose to go up to her room and change out of her wet pants. Rose's eyes grew very wide. Never. I will never. She began banging her head with rhythmic intensity against the kitchen floor, throwing all of her weight behind each attack. My mother put her arms around Rose's waist and tried to hold her back. Rose shook her off, not even looking around to see what was slowing her down. My mother crumpled next to the refrigerator. Violet, please. I threw myself onto the kitchen floor, becoming the spot that Rose was smacking her head against. She stopped a fraction of an inch short of my stomach. Oh, Vi, Mummy, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, don't hate me. She staggered to her feet and ran, wailing to her room. My mother got up and washed her face, brusquely rubbing it dry with a dishcloth. My father uh, heard the wailing and came running in, slipping his long bare feet out of his rubber boots. Galen, Galen, let me see. He held her head and looked closely for bruises on her pale, small face. What happened? My mother looked at me. Violet, what happened? Where's Rose? Rose got upset, and when she went running upstairs, she pushed Mommy out of the way. I've only told three lies in my life, and that was my second. (laughs) She must feel terrible pushing you of all people. It would have to be you, but I know she didn't want it to be. He made my mother a cup of tea, and all the love he had for her, despite her silent rages and her vague stares, came pouring through the teapot, warming her cup, filling her small, long-fingered hands. He stood by her, and she rested her head against his hip. I looked away. Let's make dinner, then I'll call her, or you call her, David. Maybe she'd rather see your face first. Dinner was filled with all of our starts and stops and Rose's desperate efforts to control herself. She could barely eat and hummed the McDonald's theme song over and over again, pausing only to spill her juice down the front of her smock and begin weeping. My father looked at my mother and handed Rose his napkin. She dabbed at herself listlessly, but the tears stopped. I want to go to bed. I want to go to bed and be in my head. I want to go to bed and be in my bed and be in my head and just wear red. For red is the color that my baby wore. And once more, it's true. Yes, it is. It's true. Please don't. Wear red tonight. Oh, please, don't wear red tonight, for red is the co- Okay, okay, Rose, it's okay. I'll go upstairs with you, and you can get ready for bed. Then Mommy will come up and say goodnight, too. It's okay, Rose. My father reached out his hand, and Rose grasped it, and they walked out of the dining room together, and his long arm was around her middle. My mother sat at the table for a moment, her face in her hands, and then she began clearing the table. We cleared without talking, my mother humming Schubert's schlummerlied, a lullaby about the woods and the river, calling to the child to go to sleep. She sang it to us every night when we were small. My father came back into the kitchen and signaled to my mother. She went upstairs and they came back down together a few minutes later. She's asleep, they said, and we went to sit on the porch and listen to the crickets. I don't remember the rest of the evening, but I remember it as quietly sad, and I remember the rare sight of my parents holding hands, sitting on the picnic table, watching the sunset. I woke up at three in the morning, feeling the cool night air through my sheet I went down the hall for another blanket and looked into Rose's room for no reason. She wasn't there. I put on my jeans and a sweater and went downstairs. I could feel her absence. I went outside and saw her wide, draggy footprints darkening the wet grass into the woods. Rosie, I called too softly, not wanting to wake my parents, not wanting to startle Rose. Rosie, it's me. Are you there? Are you all right? I almost fell over her, huge and white in the moonlight. Her flowered smock bleached in the light and shadow, her sweatpants now completely wet. Her head was flung back, her white, white neck Exposed like a lost Greek column, rosy, rosy. Her breathing was very slow and her lips were not as pink as they usually were. Her eyelids fluttered. Closing time, she whispered. I believe that's what she said. I sat with her uncovering the bottle of white pills by her hand and watched the stars fade. When the stars were invisible and the sun was warming the air, I went back to the house. My mother was standing on the porch, wrapped in a blanket, watching me. Every step I took overwhelmed me. I could picture my mother slapping me, shooting me for letting her favorite die. Warrior queens, she said, wrapping her thin, strong arms around me. I raised warrior queens. She kissed me fiercely and went into the woods by herself. A little later, she woke my father, who could not go into the woods. And still later, she called the police and the funeral parlor. She hung up the phone, lay down, and didn't get back out of bed until the day of the funeral. My father fed us both and called the people who needed to be called and picked out Rose's coffin by himself. My mother played the piano and Addie sang her pure gold notes and I closed my eyes and saw my sister, fourteen years old, lion's mane thrown back and her eyes tightly closed against the glare of the parking lot lights. That sweet sound held us tight, flowing around us, eddying through our hearts, rising, still rising.
0: Linda Lavin performed Silver Water by Amy Bloom. I'm Hope Davis. Three stories about families and reconciliation, recognition, and resolution. If you have a great family coming together story, and we know you do, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. I'm Hope Davis. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivian Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deer Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dunn-Gannon Foundation. Creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the NYC COVID 19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodsons Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.